as much support as I had, I didn't have enough people to talk to or enough moments of time talking to people about all that was going on. It came so thick and fast. So I actually used my iPhone and I would uh, just directly after a particularly contentious phone conversation, I just speak my thoughts into my iPhone memo app. And, you know, it usually was maybe three, four minutes or maybe seven minutes. It might be a rant. It might be, I can't believe what she just said, or, or I can't believe that, that she wants to, you know, take her back to the blah, blah, blah therapist. You know, whatever these complaints were, I would speak them into my iPhone. And then after a while, I would play them back and it would be a way, just the listening to my own thoughts, actually or listening to my own words was somehow therapeutic. I can't explain how it helped, but it did. I did that for quite a while, I would say for the last year or so of my mother's illness. When cancer enters your life, things get real very quickly. Today I'm speaking with Cecily Young, whose husband, John Rubel underwent a bone marrow transplant during treatment for leukemia in 2005. Cecily talks about providing for her husband's well-being, as well as that of their young son during his treatment and recovery, using the metaphor of herself as a ship's captain charged with maintaining morale and keeping the everyday concerns of their lives afloat during this time. She also delves into the devastating conflict she experienced with her sister while caring for their mother, as well as the feelings of resentment engendered by the significant professional sacrifices she made as a result of being persistently pressed into service as a reluctant caregiver. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. Welcome, Cecily. Thank you so much for coming in today to talk with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Diane. I love your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Well, before we talk about cancer, I'd like to have you tell us a bit about yourself and your family. Well, my husband and I are both architects. We met at work, actually, when he was interviewing me to work at his firm, And eight years later, we got married. Five years later, we had our son, Julian. And he's 17 now and heading off to college. Oh, that's very exciting. I'm excited (laughs) and saddened a little. Yeah, of course. It's very bittersweet. It's like the thing you wanted to have happen that's going to break your heart. Exactly. Yep. All right. So now let's talk about your husband, John, who had a cancer experience. What was his diagnosis and what kind of treatment did he undergo? Well, he actually had a series of diagnoses uh, starting very shortly after we got married, about a year or two after we got married. He was first diagnosed with polycythemia vera, which is a blood disease, causes sort of a thickening of the blood and is solved with, you know, a monthly treatment of. I guess, what do they call it? Um, When they draw your blood off and literally throw it away just to thin your blood. 
So uh, that was his treatment for a number of years, and he was being monitored. And as he progressed in his disease, he then moved towards uh, leukemia. But just to back up, when he received the diagnosis of polycythemia vera, I, of course, wanted to know more about what that was, a young married couple wanting to know. And the internet was a little less ever present in those days. It was like 1995 or six. And so I did Google it, and I found only a few articles about it, very little. And they were all very, very worrisome, a a prognosis of survival of only seven to 10 years. And there wasn't a lot to look at. It just sent me into a bit of a worry, and I decided to just stop looking Mm -hmm. at that stuff and uh, deal with the day-to-day. And we, moving forward to when he had that diagnosis, he was being treated, and then he further developed diabetes, and that went under treatment as well. And then as we moved through the years, I suppose it was maybe... Six years later, he started to move in the direction of leukemia and was sent to the City of Hope, Dr. Stephen Foreman, who heads up the bone marrow transplant unit at the City of Hope. He's an amazing, amazing doctor, but also an amazing person. And once we met him, I had complete faith. I guess I never doubted that John would uh, survive this and be treated and, and make it through. So... I I just stopped looking at statistics. I was asked by my sister, "What are the statistics?" And I said, "I don't, I don't, I don't haven't looked at it. I don't want to know, mm-hmm. because I always believe that whatever they were would we would be in that that percentage, whatever it was, whether it was two percent or thirty percent or a hundred percent, we would be in the percent that survived. So." Mm-hmm. That was how we felt at the time. Anyway, fast forward, he was monitored for two years before treatment began, during which time a donor was was sought and found. And then while those two years went by, of course, Dr. Foreman explained that the treatments were just improving. So that's why waiting as long as possible was the course he wanted to go. Mm. And then he was treated. It took about... Once the donor was found and uh, and the hospital time was scheduled, he was in the hospital for about 37 days and then recovered about six months after that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's uh, quite a a journey. Compared to many people's journeys and some who live with a great deal of uncertainty about whether it's coming back, it was a very orderly journey. Mm. Everything more or less went according to the doctor's plan, the time, the period of treatment, and uh, what would happen afterwards. So in a way, there were not too many surprises along the way. Yeah, that's what you want. (laughs) It was helpful. As scary as it was, it was great Yeah, not to be surprised. It sounds like you felt hopeful you didn't dip into information that was going to make you feel other other ways. Did you have any other emotions at the time? Did you, did you worry about anything? You know, what, what did you find difficult? Well, I would say that I worried very much that our son Julian, who was only five at the time, would be afraid for his father, that that was a burden I didn't want to put on him. And so I made every effort 
that I could to keep life as normal as possible. And that kind of was the guiding principle for getting through those days was, you know, just get him his play dates, get him sleepovers, make life normal and fun for him, while at the same time being with John as much as I could be, which was, of course, a challenge because the hospital is 35 miles away across downtown L.A. traffic. It was a great deal of time spent going back and forth to the hospital, but it was necessary. And and also my mother-in-law, who was 91 at the time and uh, kind of getting into a point in her life, she was living with us, where she was worried to be home alone. So that put a bit more pressure on me as well to make sure that she was uh, feeling comfortable. And, and of course, her anxiety was increased by the fact that her only son was in the hospital with this life-threatening condition. So there right. were a lot of challenges. At right, that time. so you were, you were managing not only your own emotional state, but really the emotional state of two other really vulnerable people, your son and your mother-in-law, the mother of your, your husband. Yes, and so in the end you become a bit like the captain of the ship who has to maintain morale and keep things rolling along. And actually at the time we were reading Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series, which is surprisingly inspiring for someone going through great difficulties. Mm. Um, There were moments reading those books with John in the hospital where I just felt like that that story, how could that story, which is about a sea captain in 1810, a man fighting the French on the open seas or the Dutch, how could that relate to me? (laughs) Somehow there were a lot of sort of deep lessons of connection and community in that book that helped me understand where I stood with my world. In yeah, a way. I'm sure overcoming kind of this adversary, the sea or cancer. Against impossible odds too. And that was what was so inspiring is that at those moments when things like are just dire, that it's still possible. Mm-hmm. And that was so inspiring at the time when we were going to the hospital, or when I was going to the hospital and spending time there with John. It sounds like at the time you you took a lot of strength from the book you were reading, from kind of your general attitude about uh, that you were going to be in that the percentage that survived, and plus you were you were taking care of your son and also your mother in law. Was there a time when you were able to? think about what you'd gone through and and not have to be in such a strong state, but recognize the peril that you'd been through? I would say I don't think I allowed myself to think that it was... Words like peril did not come into mind. Mm-hmm. I think I just used the daily routine of visiting John taking care of Julian, dealing with Alice as my focus. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like dealing with the little things of daily life, getting to the hospital, making sure John had what he needed, 
getting Julian his playdates. All of those things could just fill up your mind, and I, I, I was happy to let them do that. I didn't want to delve into any deep thoughts because I didn't want that word peril to come into mind. Yeah, of course. <laughs> How did John's illness affect you, either at the time or afterwards? What did you struggle most with um, while he was in treatment or afterwards? His treatment was relatively orderly. Things went more or less as planned. It was a discrete time period that was more or less as predicted. And all along the way, he did more or less as they hoped he would do. Well, I think the struggle might come more after when I was allowed to think about my own health and what I needed and, you know, beginning to ask myself the question, would I get this kind of care or this kind of attention from John in return? Not like it was an exchange, and that's really not what I meant to say, but more that could I rely on him as he had relied on me. There were moments where I just struggle to believe that he will give me the help I need when I need it, just because he's not as focused and observant of other people's appearance or conditions or for example when I was sick one time and I had the flu and I really actually started to have a high fever and I started to have fuzzy thinking and I wasn't really taking care of myself I wasn't drinking water and I started to become dehydrated and I actually started to lose weight from dehydration and John just didn't seem to even notice properly what was going on he would brought me a couple of meals. He thought he was taking care of me, but what he should have been doing, what I would have been doing for him, was making sure that I drank enough water. And my doctor later said to me that if it had gone on much longer, I should have gone to the emergency room. And that's the kind of thing where I feel that there's some like basic, obvious health things that could happen to me like that, that I could not rely on John to really be there for me and do the things that someone who is a caregiver Mm -hmm. will do. Right. Yeah. It's so important to be trained in those nurturing skills that um, people who have been trained to be nurturers, that is women have been trained by their mothers to be nurturers for the most part. It seems obvious to do those things, but it's not necessarily obvious to someone who hasn't really well, there's always training. been, yeah, exactly those. There's always been, for most men, a woman around who's going to be doing that. And the countless times I've brought trays to my parents, my mother, my father, taking care of them in the hospital, taking them to the emergency room, taking John's mother to the emergency room. I can't even count the number of times. And he always seemed to be out of town <laughs> when, that, when that happened, which is always like, he didn't plan it. 
Right. I, I think she almost would just decide that she could hang on until he was gone and then she'd sort of dump her illness on me. I don't know. I have no idea. But I know that you don't control these things, of course. They're all just sort of subconscious things that happen. But she somehow always needed to go to the hospital when he was away or when he himself was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Well, she probably uh, knew she'd get better care from you. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I look back on that time and I honestly don't believe that he ever took her to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think so. So you were really supporting everybody in the family. Yeah, and 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 with that comes uh, you know a sense of like, wait a minute, what about me? <laughs> you know, I don't want. I actually did not want to be a caregiver to actually four different people in my life. And there's along with that comes a certain amount of, I'll say, deep inside a small kernel of resentment of the parts of my life that I've given up so that I could be a caregiver to. Not to John, because he was really the first who needed it, and he's my husband, and I, I, don't, I gave that willingly. But for all the elders who had all these chaotic moments of somebody just needing to drop what they're doing, step in, take them to the hospital, get them into a nursing home, take care of them, I guess I, I've just never realized there would be so much of that in my life, and there's a, a bit of a feeling deep down that it it has taken something from me. Sure, of course, yeah. During this this time when you were taking care of not only John, but a lot of other people in your life, what were some of the coping strategies that you helped to get you through the difficulty? As I said before, keeping life as normal for my son was a really good mindset because that just involved a lot of little tasks that can fill up your mind and you 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 do these little tasks that you need to do to make life normal for Julian or Alice and you do that in in a way that kind of fills up your life and that allowed me to keep those more foreboding thoughts away another coping strategy that i used was when sometimes when things would be difficult, particularly when I was dealing in my mother's care with my sister, and that that was more challenging because I had someone else who had different ideas of what should be done, and there was a lot of disagreement and conflict over that. As much support as I had, I didn't have enough people to talk to or enough moments of time talking to people about all that was going on. It came so thick and fast. So I actually used my iPhone and I would uh, just directly after a particularly contentious phone conversation, I just Mm -hmm. speak my thoughts into my iPhone memo app. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, it usually was maybe three, four minutes or maybe seven minutes. It might be a rant. It might be, I can't believe what she just said or or I can't believe that that she wants Mm -hmm. to, you know, take her back to the blah, blah, blah therapist. You know, whatever these complaints were, I would speak them into my iPhone. And then after a while, I would play them back and it would be a way just the listening to my own thoughts, actually, 
or listening to my own words was somehow therapeutic. I can't explain how it helped, but it did. I did that for quite a while, I would say for the last year or so of my mother's illness. Hmm, that's so interesting. Have you ever listened to them subsequently? Yes, I have. You know, I discover them on my iPhone every now and then, and I'll listen, and then I go, God, I don't want to go back there again, and am I so glad that this is not happening now? So that's usually my reaction. Yet at the same time, like, I don't want to throw them away. They're somehow there uh, as a, a memory of a very, very difficult time that I somehow want to keep recorded um, so that, in a way, I can be grateful for my freedom from that life. Yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting story. I, I highly recommend it, actually. It's, um, you know, when you need to rant and there's nobody there, often it was driving. You know, you get these phone calls in the car and you just like... You discover something that's just sort of mind-blowingly frustrating or very uh, just arouses a great deal of anger. And you just talk it out like you would to somebody, but you're like talking, you're putting your case. I, I think I would put my case for this is why I think mm-hmm. I'm right, or this is why I think we shouldn't do that, or this is why I think mom didn't want that. And I would just get it down there. And, you know, I never asked anyone else to listen to them, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah, they're your, your personal, uh, mm-hmm. personal memory of that, of that time. Mm-hmm. So just circling back to John for a little bit, how did you try to support John during his illness? What did he need most from you? I would say that he needed me to be there to come and spend time with him in the hospital. That was really clear. The first portion of his treatment was the most scary part, going through chemo, which he'd never done. And it's, for the bone marrow transplant, it's, it's quite intense. Um, many hours for, I think it was five days in a row, 24-7, literally a nurse is watching you in your room to make sure there's no terrible reaction to it. And then at the end of that time period, when his immune system went to zero, he would uh, receive the bone marrow transplant, which was coming in the form of a blood transfusion, which as ordinary as that might seem, it was actually quite a big deal and a little bit scary for John too, because his body could reject it potentially and it could have created all kinds of problems for him. So there was a lot of fear for him. And I knew that just by being there for him, that was what he needed. Just reading books with him, hanging out, even if we did nothing, even if we just sat there or watched a movie or listened to music or I brought him photos of the family to look at or cards from friends those were highlights of his day. He told me afterwards mm-hmm. how much that meant to him. Yeah, that's lovely. How would you say that going through the experience of John's cancer, and, and really it's, it's not just John's cancer because it was really, it was other things that were happening with your mother-in-law and your own mother. How has just going through that 
really difficult time. How has it affected you? Has it changed your outlook in any significant way? Just what do you feel are the lasting effects? Well, I wouldn't describe it as an outlook, but there are things that I've noticed that are normal to me that are not, were not normal before and probably aren't normal to most people. And one is that I know the moment when things are critical and someone needs to just drop everything they're doing and just step in and help someone. That there's no point in waiting when your 91-year-old mother is having trouble breathing. You go to the hospital and you don't wait. I feel this kind of take charge personality comes on and I'm very familiar now with hospital environments, with what you can expect in terms of being Uh, abandoned there and not paid any attention to whatsoever. So the need for being an advocate for the vulnerable sick person you're there with. I just have my emergency mode I go into, which has been called upon many times. And I know that very well. And I do it because nobody else around seems to even know that there's an emergency. Or maybe I'm just the only adult in the room or I'm the only caregiver type in the room. So that's kind of a a lasting kind of effect that I've noticed. And I've also noticed that I'm not afraid of icky things as much as many people are um, uh, helping with (laughs) bandages and dressings and that kind of thing is just not that big a deal for me. But more in the the long-term effect is not a good one in that I think there is inside me a kind of kernel of resentment against being a caregiver. I watch my mother give her elder years to my father's Alzheimer's and just the misery that she went through caring for him, hiding it from everyone, doing everything for him and in a way it took her health and I just don't want to do that and yet when those circumstances come up how can you not you're the only one there how can you not that's where the resentment comes in (laughs) so I really wish somebody else would step up why can't there be somebody else around to take care of John's mother? Why does it always have to be me? Or why did I have to change my father's diaper in the hospital? Why did I have to find so many post-hospital nursing home possibilities for my mother and go visit them all and get her ensconced in them one after the other after each hospital visit? And they're always different. And it's always other personalities and other people. And it's just just a black hole of responsibility that eats your life up. Uh, So the resentment is, where am I in that? I completely dropped my architectural practice that was just beginning to get rolling as a result of all these things. And I feel like I I missed out on my own life caring for everybody else. I didn't sign up to be a nurse. I have a good friend from high school who is a nurse. It's a role she embraced in life and and does, but that's not the role I chose for myself in life. I I, I wanted to be an architect, a designer. 
I wanted to work and uh, make architecture design affect people's lives in another way instead of being in this role of caregiver, which is completely underappreciated by the world, not necessarily by those who receive the care. Usually they're very appreciative. But if you tell people professionally that I dropped out of architecture so I could care for my ailing parents for five years, that does not help your resume at all. That doesn't help you get a job. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating to me that women are always given this role and, and penalized for it as well. Right, that's right. Yeah, it's like you have this amazing competence to uh, assess a, a situation accurately, to know what to do, to be able to follow through with all of the steps. But rather than really feeling like that is something that you can feel proud of, circumstances have led you to feeling burdened by it rather than a sense of accomplishment. I mean, I truly admire the caregivers who take care of people in hospice because there is no outcome that they can say it clearly shows that they did such a great job, you know, and because the person is going to die. Mm-hmm. And yet they somehow manage to do their jobs. And I can attest that some of the hospice nurses I've met have been amazingly kind and generous people and have done wonderful things for my parents and loved ones. So I admire that. But as a person who was in a profession and is in a profession, I just did not want to spend so much time on caregiving. I'll just put that out there. I wanted to be doing other things. Yeah, understandable. How would you say that the experience of going through cancer has affected the relationship that you and John have? In some ways, I think it might be stronger because he truly appreciates what it meant for me to do these things for him. He he knows what it meant to him. He knows the effect it had on my life. So in a way, he's I, there's that kind of, that sort of gratefulness that that is there. But at the same time, I've never shared these thoughts of resentment with him. So I suppose if he knew that, it might become more of an interesting discussion. <laughs> but our relationship, I think, I would say that it's stronger in that way. I would say that it, it did raise that question for me, would he care for me? And that, like I heard in your podcast, Diane, you mentioned wanting to be enveloped in care by someone else who would just sweep you up and take care of you. And just as I have done for John, and I have done for his mom, and I have done for my parents, but I don't know if he will do it for me. Not because he doesn't want to. I think it's more because he has no practice at it. He doesn't know how. 
as we age and get to that moment in our life where we might need others to care for us, that's still a question in my mind. I have no doubt that he would want to. I just don't know if he would do it to my standards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's always that. (laughs) So we've talked a little bit about other people who you were caring for during this very difficult time. But I wanted to ask you a slightly different question, which was how your experience of cancer, which your mother had, uh, was different as a daughter than it was as a spouse. The big difference was that I had a sibling, and that my sibling and I didn't always agree about what to do, and that my sibling felt as controlling or more controlling than I over every outcome that could possibly happen for my mother, and had an entirely different philosophy of end of life, Uh, a kind of fight to the very end, never give up, never surrender kind of philosophy, which I think she felt was the way to be a good daughter. And there were a lot of conflicts. So that difference, that difference between her philosophy and mine, which is, is at a certain point when the doctors are saying your mother is not going to live past another six months, I could say that I was more concerned with making her comfortable, enjoy her last months of life, whereas my sister felt that the doctors at that point, they had to all be wrong, and we need to find other doctors, and we need to fight, fight, fight for different doctors, better treatments, new things, more invasive, more this, more that, more hospital time, more therapy. And I think that this this conflict was the overarching theme of of that memory for me. My relationship with my mother and all that happened at the end of life is very complex. It's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but being a daughter is different than a spouse because as a spouse you feel that you are the number one person who really is there for your your spouse. You really feel like you're the one who has all the responsibility, whereas as a, as a child, you feel like it must somehow be shared if you have a sibling. And that created the conflict and the difficulty with my sister, or that, that opened the setting for a, a life of conflict and difficulty with my sister. And then, of course, dealing with the fact that you are now going to become the elders in your family as your parents pass away, because my story of cancer with my parents is that they did not survive. My mother, after three years of treatment, passed away of the side effects of all the chemotherapy that she had received, which just knocked out her bodily functions, her liver and kidneys just were giving it up, and she could no longer stabilize her own body. She passed away of those side effects rather than the cancer itself. Becoming the elder in your family just is, is for me, it's this sort of 
dull realization that there's no one to look up to anymore. There's no one to call for guidance. You are now the one who's supposed to be wise and help guide the family through whatever challenges it has to go through. I think my sister found that change to be intolerable. I think it caused extreme stress for her and caused her to act out in just ways that made our our relationship just end completely. That's the difference of being a daughter. And if if you talk to many people whose parents have passed away it's the passing away it's the the changing of the guard it's the it's the moment of realizing that you're the ones left that is probably the more difficult experience in my case my cancer story with john was that he survived he's still here it had a happy ending but with my parents it did not right So I'd like to just close with kind of gathering up some of the wisdom of experience. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you would tell someone whose spouse has been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I think I would tell a spouse that they should really just slow down throw away all the little detritus of bullshit things in your life, all the technology, all of this and that, and just try to just slow down and be there for your spouse in whatever way they need you to be there. Just spend time with them, listen to them, kiss them, hug them, bring them music to hear in the hospital and pictures and cards. Just focus on the here and now and the day-to-day. Do not go researching it and finding statistics and, you know, all of that. Find yourself a good doctor. You must trust your doctor. We were really able to trust our doctor. Uh, He was leading in his field, and that just took all of that burden of, you know, this world of buyer beware and treating medicine like some kind of consumer product. We should all shop around and look for good things. It's really not. And you find a good doctor, and then you have to have some faith, not in the religious sense, just a belief that the faith that this will work out. And that comes from Uh, doing everything you can and also believing that your doctor knows what he's doing or she and just slow down and let it all unfold and do your best and spend time together. Now that sounds like very wise counsel. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming in, Cecily. I really appreciate you sharing your experience with me. Thank you, Diane. It's been really interesting to sit here and have all these memories flow out. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. We'd love to hear from you and find out why you listened and what you like about the Real Cancer Podcast. Please email your feedback to realcancerpodcast at gmail.com and leave a review on iTunes. If you haven't yet, 
please subscribe to Real Cancer on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Real Cancer on Twitter at Real Cancer Pod. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel.